The psalm that we're looking at today begins like this. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Which is kind of an interesting line, praise the Lord, O my soul, because like who's talking, right? Maybe it's like the Spirit in us talking to our soul. Like there's something wrong with our soul. Our soul is all like shriveled up and closed up in on itself, and the Spirit says to our soul, praise the Lord, you, you soul. <laughs> You damn soul, you closed up soul. So that's what we're gonna do, all right? Would you stand up uh, with me? And uh, in this song, you can talk to your soul and tell your soul to praise the Lord, all right? To bless the Lord, oh, oh, your soul. So Lord God, we pray that you would send your spirit. And we thank you that you already have. We thank you that your spirit is here. We pray that your spirit would move in us and that, uh, Lord God, you would cause us to worship. I think we're saying we present ourselves as living sacrifices. And if necessary, Lord God, would you just bust these old souls open and cause us to worship you, to forget about ourselves, worship you, and join with all creation as we bless you, Lord God, for you are good. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen. Last week began preaching uh, from the Psalms with Psalm 145. All the Psalms that follow 145, 146 through 150, they all begin and end with this phrase, praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. Hallel means praise, and Yah is short for Yahweh. Hallelujah, praise, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. This command, it's a command, appears 34 times in the Psalms, 16 times in the last five Psalms. Uh, Psalm 146, or Psalm for the day, uh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. If you're easily confused by my sermons, this is the point, praise the Lord was the point of the revelation a year and a half. Worship God, if you said that in Hebrew, it'd be hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, if you wanna know what it is you have to do, what you're being, people always wanna know, pastor, what do I do? What am I being commanded to do? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's the commandment, praise the Lord. And now something inside of you might say, no. No, Peter, you can't command people to Praise the Lord. That's like pointing a gun at someone's head and commanding them to love you. Yeah, it is. But the psalmist did not command you to praise. The psalmist commanded you to praise the Lord. He doesn't need to command you to praise <laughs> because you already do. Like we said last week, worship is your favorite thing 
to do. Remember, we watched a video of people praising the Broncos at Mile High Stadium. We listened to a fellow sing a song of praise to his Suzy Q. We listened to another fellow praise his four-speed dual-quad positive traction 409 and his 62 Chevy Impala. We saw how one fellow praised Budweiser beer by wearing the logo on his, on his t-shirt. We saw how Vincent Van Gogh praised sunflowers by painting their picture. We saw how we all praised Abraham Lincoln by commissioning his statue at the Lincoln Memorial. And we saw how Barney Fife worshipped himself by singing a song of praise to himself. Worship is your favorite thing to do. We worship like we breathe. You see a great movie and you can't wait to praise the movie, to tell all your friends, you gotta go see that movie and you, and you praise the movie. I had a seminary professor used to say that to be human is to worship. And as we learned last week, worship shapes you in the image of that which you worship without even trying. <laughs> the psalmist doesn't command us to praise. He commands us to praise the Lord. You see, maybe you can't command true praise, but you can redirect it. In fact, I think we do that quite often. So here's a silly example. Let's suppose you wake up one Saturday morning, you're just really, really hungry. So you go down to IHOP, you order some pancakes, and they're really, really awesome pancakes. And so you call your waitress over and you say, hey, these pancakes are awesome. I'm just like blown, I'm blown away. Thanks for these awesome pancakes. And she says, oh, well, I'm really glad that you liked them, but I, I didn't make them. That was Leroy the cook. So you get Leroy the cook. Leroy comes out, and you say to Leroy, I praise you, Leroy, for these pancakes. And Leroy says, cool, I, I kind of I like that, but I didn't grow the weed. I didn't make the butter. That was the farmer and his cow. So you find the farmer, and you say to the farmer, thanks for the pancakes and the butter. And the farmer says to you, well, that wasn't me. That was the sun and, and the rain. That was the sun and the rain that grew the weed and, and my cow that gave the milk. And if the farmer is a pagan, he might also say, so you ought to worship the sun. You ought to worship the rain. If the farmer was a Hindu, he might say, you ought to make a sacrifice to my cow. And if the farmer was a Jew, he'd say, hallelujah. He might say, hallelujah, praise, praise the Lord. That is, don't praise the cow or the sun or the rain or me or the cook or the waitress, but praise Yahweh for the cow, for the sun, for me, for the cook, for the, uh, the waitress. Praise God for Leroy. Praise God for making the lot of us. Praise God uh, for even making that hunger in you that made you get up early on a Saturday morning and drive down to the IHOP and experience those really good pancakes. You understand, you were already praising. The waitress, the cook, and the farmer just redirected your praise and maybe even amplified it a bit with some knowledge of the good. If the farmer is a Christian, he might say, hallelujah, praise God in Jesus' name. For not only did God make all of those things, he made all of those things with his word, with his word, and, and not only made those things, he fills all of those things with his glory, which is himself revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the faith in me. He's the light in the sun. He's the logic in the biology of the cow, the logos in the biologos. He's what everything means. He's the truth in the cook. He's the way 
way that the waitress walked to your table. He's the life that was crucified for you in that pancake, sacrificed for you in that pancake. He's the good you tasted in the pancake. He's the glory of God that fills the whole earth. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The whole earth. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah sees what David saw. What we talked about last week. He sees the kavod hador, the glorious splendor of God's majesty. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and the angels cry one to another, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Not will be filled, not might be filled, not could be filled, is filled with his glory. And remember when Jesus was high and lifted up on his cross, that curtain in the temple that separated the kavod hador on the top of the ark, the throne of God, from the people, that curtain, it ripped from the top to the bottom, and the glory, like, got out. And remember this, according to the Revelation, that happened from the foundation of the world. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, the cosmos, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Praise the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I wonder why we don't see it. The whole earth filled with his glory. Well, see, maybe praise the Lord is not the antidote for praising nothing so much as the antidote for praising anything and everything. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. See, praise the Lord is the antidote for idolatry. First commandment, the Big Ten, remember? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's idolatry. Second commandment, thou shalt make no uh, graven image and bow down to them. That's idolatry. Pretty much every sin at the root is idolatry. You remember that it was the besetting sin of Israel. It was a big one on, on the way to the Holy Land. Israel made a golden calf. It was a calf. I remember as a kid thinking, those stupid Jews, what were they thinking? I mean, they could have made idiots. You're going to make an idol, make something cool, right? Not a calf. Make like Voltron or Skeletor or Santa Claus. But a calf? Why a calf? Well, now that I'm older and I've had some run-ins with God, I understand. <laughs> you can keep a calf in a pen. Right? A calf is, is useful. It's comfortable. It's safe. God, not so much. For an ancient nomad, a calf, I mean, a calf was like a new Ford pickup truck. A calf carries your things, plows your field, gives you milk and, and even meat. You can control a calf. So, so they made a calf. But of course it was dead. They couldn't make a, a living calf, let alone a living God. Men make idols and pretend that those idols make them. <laughs> and that's a rather sneaky way to worship yourself, <laughs> the self-made man. 
I think that's probably the idol behind all the idols. The American idol, me. Anthropologists like Emil Durkheim have argued that this is what all religion is, a sneaky way for people to worship themselves. Durkheim studied a group of aborigines and came to the conclusion that particular tribes value particular traits which they desire to affirm and instill in their members. And over time, they come to associate these particular traits with particular animals that he called totems. Durkheim postulated that over time, these totems, like eagles and impalas and broncos, these totems begin to be worshipped as, as gods. In the Pacific Northwest, he noted, um, he noted that tribes would often carve their totems on, onto trees and then lift those trees or those, those poles, these totem poles, in order that all would see the totem. He postulated that all religion is totemic. And since the totem is simply the symbolic representation of the predominant values of the society, all religion is just the way that society worships itself. It's how we fashion people. We, we use religion. It's how we fashion people in our image and even fashion gods in the image of us. In the beginning, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. That's totemism, according to Durkheim, and idolatry, according to the Bible. And it all kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I have my totems. I mean, I even kind of try to turn myself into a, a, a totem pole. I, I mean by that, I like, I'll wear my Bronco ball cap and my Budweiser T-shirt, and maybe I even get an Impala tattooed on my arm next to the name Suzy Q. I, I worship those things, and thereby I use those things to create myself in their image, the image of my idol, which is really myself. <laughs> I'm worshiping myself, and I'm using them to do so, my totems. Hey, do you think we could ever turn God into our totem? Psalm 146, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my nephesh, that thing made out of the dust and the, and the breast. Praise the Lord, my soul, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man. Put not your trust in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath, ruach, is translated also spirit. When his spirit departs, he returns to the earth. Literally, his earth, his adamah, his dust, his clay, and on that very day his plans perish. Put no trust in princes. The Nadi Beam. Now that can mean a prince like Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi or King David, which is an interesting thought if King David wrote this. It can also mean something like the nobility or the superstars, kind of like the Denver Broncos. Put no trust in princes. 
On the afternoon of October 20th, 1986, a day that will live in infamy, the Denver Broncos were 6-0, and zero, having already beaten the Los Angeles Raiders in the first game of the season. I was a high school youth pastor of Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Los Angeles, California. Intimidated by Los Angeles and homesick for Denver, for two years I had literally turned myself in a walking, talking uh, Denver Bronco totem pole everywhere I went. I would literally go to youth group in Denver Bronco paraphernalia, covered in Denver Bronco paraphernalia, and my youth group would ritually, ritually assault me, rip off all my clothes and fashion headbands out of the orange fabric. They thought it was funny. But by 1986, I had made some disciples. I had converted some of them from the black and the silver to the, to the, to the orange and blue. It was, it was awesome. And October 20th, uh, 1986, six and zero, the Broncos were playing the New York Jets on Monday Night Football. And they were blown out, 22 to 10. I laid awake literally all night long, replaying third downs in, in my head, telling myself things like this, Peter, it doesn't matter, Peter, it doesn't matter. Peter, they're just hired professionals. John Elway isn't even from Colorado, he doesn't even love you, I don't think he even loves you, it does not matter. <laughs> but it was too late. I had so profusely praised the Broncos that it wasn't just the Broncos that crashed and burned, Peter Hyatt crashed and burned and I did not sleep all night long. Idolatry will destroy you. And you will destroy the idols that you worship. For several years, about 20 years ago, I sometimes did chapel for the Denver Broncos. Bill Rader, I don't see him, but he's part of the sanctuary. I. Bill was the chaplain for the Broncos, and so he would have me come down and do chapel before games sometimes. The, the, the first time I did it, it was the Super Bowl year, and they were playing our arch nemesis, the evil Kansas City Chiefs. At one point, I remember just being a bit overwhelmed that morning. I was suddenly overwhelmed with this sudden and unexpected fear. Having met some of the guys, having eaten breakfast together, I, I suddenly realized these guys are just guys. They're just guys. I mean, in my mind, they have become numbers and statistics like a machine, and yet at the same time, like little gods or, or idols, I suddenly realized these guys are just guys. I mean, they could get gas and be in a bad mood and, and blow this whole thing. These guys are just guys, and yet all of Denver thinks that they're, they're like gods. And then suddenly I found myself terrified, but not only for me, for them. Because you see, when our idols don't live up to our expectations, we often crucify our idols. I know this from experience. I've been something like, kind of like an, an idol, and, and I've seen the crowd just suddenly turn and start chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. Idolatry kills us and then we kill our idols. Now, listen closely. Pancakes are a silly example. The Denver Broncos are kind of a silly example, but your wife, 
your husband, your kids, your friends. They're not silly examples. If you idolize your wife, it will kill you. And then you'll crucify your wife. If you idolize your children, it will kill you. And then you'll slowly destroy your children. If you idolize your friends, it it will kill you. And then one day you'll find yourself all alone. For no one can live up to your expectations. No one can be God for you. So praise the Lord. No one can be God for you except the Lord. Praise, Praise the Lord. Am I saying don't praise your wife? (laughs) Kinda. I'm saying don't worship your wife. Don't praise your wife, but praise the Lord for your wife, and then you'll begin to truly love your wife, for you'll see that she is not your totem. She's a temple. She's an earthen vessel that contains the breath of Yahweh, the Lord God. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes. Hey, did you know that prince rhymes with, with Vince? And so some translate the verse this way. Put not your trust in princes or Vinces. Isn't that interesting? It's like a weird Hebrew thing. But anyway, Vince leads us in worship, you know. And I've never, ever, hardly ever heard anything negative about Vince or the way he leads us. But do you suppose that we could idolize Vince or idolize the way that he leads us in worship. Sometimes, not here, not recently, but sometimes I'll hear people say things like this, worship just didn't do it for me today. That music, I couldn't even worship. If you say that, listen closely. Worship didn't do it for you because you weren't worshiping the Lord. Instead, you must have been using the Lord to worship yourself. I mean, I really hope the music, the songs, the sermons, and the prayers help you worship. They are not the things that you worship. They're the things that you worship with. They are not the things that you worship, and if they are, it's just a sneaky way of worshiping yourself. We always want to find the most helpful forms of worship, or we really want to find the most helpful forms of worship, but the form of worship must never, ever, ever keep you from from worshiping. Most of the time, the perfect worship song for me is a song that clearly explicates four-point Bardian Calvinism minus Bart's fear of the apocatastasis set to music that sounds exactly like Led Zeppelin. I mean, that is a perfect worship song for Peter Hyatt. But it may not be the perfect worship song for you. (laughs) You know, some of the psalms uh, are happy. Some of them are sad. And you know, the psalms, uh, they're all songs. It's the worship book of ancient Israel. Some of them are outrageously happy. And some of them express this incredible, profound sorrow. If you feel happy and the worship song is sad, weep with those who weep. Don't you dare stop worshiping and blame it on Vince or someone else. If you feel sad and the worship song is happy, rejoice with those who rejoice, but don't you dare stop worshiping and blame it on Led Zeppelin or whatever. 
The psalmist says, praise the Lord, PTL. He does not say praise the praise, that's PTP. We always confuse PTL and PTP because we're idolaters. And so it's no wonder that God has a habit of destroying our temples because we have a way of turning our temples into totems. So the glory, the kavod hador, leaves the temple and God reduces it to dust and begins to build a new one. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of, of man, in whom there is no salvation. When I trust myself to save myself, I put my trust in dust, and I trap myself in this earthen vessel and can no longer worship God who longs to fill my earthen vessel with himself, and he is salvation. God is salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, that's Yahweh in an earthen vessel. So, don't praise the praise. Don't worship the worship. Don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Verse five, blessed is he whose help, helper, Azer, is the God of Jacob. You know, the God of Jacob makes a pretty lousy idol, if you know the story. I mean, he'll show up in the middle of the night, wrestle you all night long, and then and they'll just, he'll beat the tar out of you, and just when it makes no sense, he just might bless you and uh, give you all things along with the promised land and a, and a new name. That's the God of Jacob. Blessed is he whose helper is the God of Jacob, Jacob Israel, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Not some prisoners, just the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Not some blind, just the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. In the previous psalm we read that he lifts up all who are bowed down, all. You know, maybe the quickest way to find out if you are an idolater, the idolatry test, is to ask yourself, am I anxious? See, Peter Hyatt is anxious because he trusts the wrong things to execute justice, feed the hungry, set the prisoners free, open the eyes of the blind, and lift up all who are bowed down. He trusts the wrong things, and that's really all sneaky way of trusting himself. He trusts the wrong things. And yet Peter Hyatt might never learn to trust God to execute justice if Peter Hyatt never encountered injustice. Peter Hyatt might never learn to trust the Lord to open the eyes of the blind unless he himself were at one point blind. If then God opened Peter's eyes, he might ceaselessly praise God for the light and trust him to open the eyes of the blind, all the blind. You know, trust is faith. And faith is reckoned as righteousness because it is. Faith is what the Adam lacked. And faith is what makes the Adam right. The Lord loves the right, the righteous. Faith is right. The Lord watches over the sojourners he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The way of the wicked is the way of not trusting the Lord. So not 
praising the Lord. If you praise the Lord, he just destroyed the way of the wicked. Well, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So, okay, where is the Lord? Well, you know, he's the slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. And you remember, he was enthroned on a tree or a pole. And that reminds me of one of the weirdest stories in all of the Bible. You may remember when the Israelites were being led through the wilderness and delivered from bondage. Some of them stopped uh, praising the Lord and began to complain about the Lord for they thought that he wasn't doing a very good job of saving them. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. It wasn't the first time that God exposed people to serpents or the serpent. In the garden, the serpent tempted Eve and Adam to trust themselves and take knowledge of the good from the tree. Well, in Numbers 21, uh, the serpents bite the people and the people begin to die. Moses prays uh, to Yahweh, and the Lord tells Moses to make, to make a bronze serpent and place it on a pole, and then he says this, and I quote, everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. All they had to do was see it, and they lived. The story always confused the Jews because they had been commanded to not make any graven images or, 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 or worship them, but they weren't to worship the snake. It was more like a confession that they had worshiped the snake and made an, an idol, you know, a snake, or, 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 or maybe themselves, <laughs> a son of man. It would have remained a bizarre little Old Testament story somewhere back in Numbers, except that in John chapter 3, Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, in order that all those trusting in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all those trusting in him might not be destroyed but have eternal life. In John chapter 2, the chapter before, Jesus had just told the Jews uh, who had just asked for a sign, he said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. How did they, how do we, destroy the temple that is Jesus. I think we turn him into our totem and put him on a pole. And you see, that's not just something the Romans and the Pharisees did on the tree in the garden 2,000 years ago. It's not just something that Adam and Eve did on the tree in the garden at the beginning of time. It's something we do every time we take the good and we turn him into our totem. Every time we try to create ourselves in the image of God by taking the life of the good from the tree, Every time we idolize ourselves and then use the knowledge of the good to glorify ourselves. Every time that we try to justify ourselves. 
And hey, <laughs> check this out. In the middle of our garden, there's a tree. I think he wants us to see it, that we might live forever. A, a, a tree, or, or maybe a pole. Is it a totem pole? On the tree, we attempted to turn God into our totem, didn't we? We attempted to nail him down, to control him, to use him, to make ourselves like him, or maybe make him like us, dead in our trespasses and sins. On the tree, we attempted to turn God into our totem. And on the tree, God turned us into his temple. <laughs> when we turn Jesus into our totem, we seize control. We use the good to justify ourselves. We crucify Christ and everything dies. <laughs> when he rises from the dead, we see that God has justified us. We surrender ourselves and begin to worship, and we become the temple of the living God, the new Jerusalem coming down. But you see, there is an idol that's nailed to that tree. He who knew no sin became sin. And that idol is the product of the serpent's lie. That idol is us. <laughs> It's the old us, it's the old Adam, it's old humanity. And there is a temple that's built at that tree. It's like the fruit of that tree. It's the body of Christ, the living, the living temple. It's where the bride of Christ is, is made. On the cross, we turn God's temple into our totem. And on the cross, God turned our totem into his temple. Actually, I think he turned all of our totems into his temple. Uh, an entire new creation. Hallelujah. You see, Jesus didn't just rise from one tomb in one place 2,000 years ago. Jesus rises from every tomb in every place throughout all of space and, and, and time. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Love the Lord, love the Lord, love the Lord. And that does not mean that you have to love other things any less. In fact, it means that you can love everything infinitely more, for everything becomes a temple in which, through which, and with which you will praise the Lord, who is anything and everything you would ever want to worship. Worship really is your favorite thing to do. And when you begin to worship God in everything, you begin to see the good risen from the dead in everything. You begin to see a universe that constantly does your favorite thing to do and invites you to do it the same with it, and that is praise the Lord. You begin to see what Isaiah saw, the whole earth filled, the whole earth filled, the Denver Broncos filled with the glory of the Lord and the New England Patriots filled with the glory of the Lord. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. 
You begin to see Suzy Q and, and your 62 Chevy Impala, Abraham, Lincoln, pancakes, cows, farmers, waitresses, and even your darkest night and your very worst enemy filled with the glory of the Lord. You begin to see the whole earth filled with the glory of the Lord, all because the glory of the Lord took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. His body. This is the earthen vessel of the Son of Man. You see, there is a Son of Man in whom there is salvation. And when you break his vessel, what comes out? Well, he took the cup and said, This is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, my blood. The life is in the blood. It's a, it's a river of life. It flows from the throne through all creation and returns to the throne as praise. So we tried to make him our totem. And he turned us and all things with us into his temple. <laughs> He's good. He's really good. He's the good. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The light cups are juice, the dark cups are wine, and praise the Lord. I'd love to be able to explain it more. I'd love to be able to unpack it. I'd love to be able to explain the benefits of it, but maybe it's best if we just do it. Let's praise the Lord. see something happens when you praise the Lord in the depths of your sanctuary the sanctuary that is your soul when when you in your inner being praise the Lord you stop praising yourself you stop worrying about yourself you stop condemning uh, yourself. In fact, you deliver yourself up to crucifixion. <laughs> you present yourself as an offering. You lose your soul and you find it. Worshiping the Lord. And that worship that's coming out of you, <laughs> that's not just you. That's the spirit of Jesus crying, Abba, Father. That's Jesus rising from the dead in you, in your earthen vessel. And then check this out. You're not a son of man in whom there is no salvation. You're a son of man praising the Lord. <laughs> You're his body, his temple in his world. In Jesus' name, 
Believe the gospel and praise the Lord.